Hi, everybody. My name is Chris Arledge. Welcome to Tuesday's edition of WeRSC.com's Inside the Trojan Huddle. As you know, if you've seen this show before, this is a panel discussion that, uh, well, we talk about USC football. Sometimes we talk about college football. All of our panelists have a working knowledge of USC football and are selected at random from the FBI's most wanted list. So let's meet this week's panelists. First, a WeRSC columnist who writes the Monday morass, yay or nay, the Sunday takeaways. He does regular season football and basketball reports. Hosts his own podcast show entitled Locked on USC. He's eagerly awaiting the next one-point loss to Stanford so USC can finally make the college football playoff. His name is Mark Culkin. The editor-in-chief. You only know, you only know what I'm talking about if you saw the show a couple weeks ago. This is what you get for missing. The editor-in-chief of WearSC.com, a columnist, a national recruiting guru, producer and moderator of in-season video shows Four Downs and Five Things, an active member of the Football Writers Association of America. He's a graduate of USC. He also sees things that nobody else sees long before anyone else knows they're happening. He was the first person to predict that Lincoln Riley was a candidate for the USC football head coaching job. Sadly, he didn't tell us that Alex Grinch would be coming along, but his name is Eric McKinney. In Greg Katz's absence, I am your humble host. I write and create videos for WeRSC when I'm not too busy or too lazy. I'm also a member of the famed 1990 Mountain View League champion, Elsinore Tigers. I'm Chris Arledge. All right, before we get started, if you enjoy WeRSC.com, we are offering first-time subscribers one month of premium content for just $1. You're not going to beat that deal. $1, go sign up right now. Just sign up. That's like one-fifth of a single Starbucks coffee. It's a good deal for you. Also, another good deal, click on the uh, like or the subscriber buttons. Here's the thing. It costs you absolutely nothing to do so, I promise. And not only that, it requires a minute amount of it. Look, this is all you have to do. That's it. That's all you have to do. So it helps us. It costs you nothing. It's easy to do. Not to do it under those circumstances is almost like a slap in Mark Culkin's face. And he's very sensitive. We don't want to hurt him that way. So just go ahead and do it. All right. Guys, are we ready to start the first quarter? Let's do it. All right. Signing day was last week. USC added a few more names to their 2024 recruiting class. Now, I think we can all agree that the early signing period has ruined the February signing day, which used to be one of the best days in college football every year. Not so much anymore. Still, still some things happen. The recruiting class is now wrapped up, at least for the high school ranks. So, guys, give us your thoughts on this 2024 recruiting class and tell us at least one thing that might surprise USC fans about this class or this recruiting cycle. We're going to start with Mark Hulk. So everyone knows by now that if they watch a show on a weekly basis, that uh, when it comes to recruiting class rankings, uh, I'm more of a, a proponent of who's recruiting you as opposed to how many stars are dangling by your name. So this class does not meet the uh, highest ranked class that USC has ever brought in. What are they, 18th ranked nationally, fifth in the Big Ten. But I like to look at, did USC fill their needs? And I think that's where you have to look for the the positive spin. 
Um, Lincoln Riley, he brought in a new defensive staff, and then he went out and he he made this this class of 22 commitments lean to the defensive side of the ball. He said going forward that, you know, defense was going to be the priority. Number one, um, getting USC back to where they needed to be. So I'm, I, I, I like this class again, not from the, the rankings perspective, but from how they filled their needs. So let me break it down. And this is what I guess I would point out uh, about this class. The one thing is that you've got 22 commitments. 13 of the 22 play defense of those 13, seven of them, you know, are designated as a defensive lineman or a linebacker. Where was USC's weakness last year on defense up front, front seven. So they they addressed that initially. Uh, They also brought in what 11 transfers that they signed seven of those play defense. So again, the flavor of the day, Lincoln Riley and the staff, we, they knew they had to get better on defense, and that's where they leaned heavily on. Of those transfers, three play defensive line or linebacker. So you're seeing almost, what, 50% of the class, when I start breaking down the numbers, on the defensive side of the ball. That's great. That's meeting the needs. It doesn't matter if they're four-star or three-star or five-star. Can they play ball? And I hope that these guys can identify talent, and I think we know that the they upgraded their their coaching staff from a from a developmental standpoint. At least we're hoping so. Um, and again, we're going to talk about the recruits throughout the show differently. But uh, you you look at how the guys that they brought in. Um, I, I think it's going to be a benefit going forward, especially making being able to make an impact this year. Um, when you add everything up, and I know I just been throwing numbers, but. 13 guys. So you got seven new defensive line players that are coming in on top of 13 defensive linemen or edge guys that are already on the roster. That means out of 85 guys, 20 are going to play defensive line or rush edge. I would think that Eric Henderson and Sean Nua are going to be able to find or be, should be able to di- identify a good two deep, if not even further. So that's what I would point out about this 2024 recruiting class. So Mark Culkin throwing numbers around. That was that's like that scene in uh, A Beautiful Mind when you walk into his room and there're just numbers everywhere. That's kind of what your answer was. But you don't want to get inside his head. You don't want to get inside his head. That's fair. All right, Eric McKinney, what do you think? I think there's a bunch of good football players in this class. I, I think that you don't have right. You don't have a five star guy. You and and you look at what NIL has done to recruiting, and there's five star guys going everywhere now. They're not all going to Alabama anymore. You've got I don't know twenty twenty five schools with with that. So you're spreading those out, and USC's not one of the schools that has one of those. So that jumps out a little bit. But what I really like is that it seems like USC has a bunch of guys just starting to sort of tap in and got better throughout their senior years. It has been so many years. You go back and look at a bunch of the classes and they are full of guys whose best year was their junior year and it slid their senior year. And then it's like, what's going on? Why aren't they doing whatever they're doing at USC? And it's because their best year of football was their junior year in high school. So I really like that so many of these guys fit there where they're getting better and better throughout their senior season. And the recruiting, their recruitment sort of follows that where 
USC gets them and, and it's big battles right at the end as some bigger schools are trying to come in and, and Hey, we like this guy and now we have a spot for him and we want to go on him. So that, that's the, that's the difference. The, the thing is when you have a class like this, you have to hit on more guys because you need more of them to contribute. And I think what we've seen now with Lincoln Riley's staff a couple years I know this defensive staff is obviously much different than than the previous one but they're finding guys I mean it's it's the guys that that come in as sort of the high three-star low four-star prospects like they get on the field and and you hear a buzz from players and coaches hey this guy can this guy can play so it feels like a bunch of those guys uh, again, there were a couple things. I know Chris likes when he asks for one thing and I come up with two or three just to make sure I, I take his thing. So I came up with two kind of interesting things, I guess, that, that if you didn't follow the entire recruiting class from start to finish might be interesting. Mark threw out all those names and I'm just going to talk about the high school guys up on that defensive line. The numbers are good. It was terrifying up until very late in the process for USC. You had Cameron Fountain, again, a big-time guy that got better and better and better. His ranking went up and up and up. There were some big programs chasing him late. He ends up uh, 63, top 70 uh, guy in the class in the industry rating. Uh, I I think the top guy for USC in in the industry rating, not in the on-three rankings. And and he's a big 6'6", 240, 250 edge kind of guy. Other than that, on the defensive line, it was a blank until mid-December. And USC ended up with G. Abbasiri coming over. He was a commit to, to Minnesota. He comes in on the 14th. Lorenzo Cowan is an edge guy. He comes in on December 15th. He was going to Kentucky. Carlon Jones was going to a few different places. Ohio State was in there. Nebraska was in there. He, that, and, and USC comes in and gets him as a, a big sort of interior defensive lineman that's december 18th uh and then and then mana comes in he was going to whisk to washington coaching fallout there he opens back up usc gets him on the second signing day february 6th so that's four guys that i think can be impact defensive linemen that a couple days before that december period were not coming to usc i mean it, it was it was going to be slim pickings up there and and that was a that's a really key spot, right? To fill in young guys on that defensive line that you can develop and find something with as the years go. So that was big. The negative side, I think, again, for for the second thing I'm I'm taking away as a USC fan that's maybe just tuning in to hey, who did USC get in that 24 class? Top 30 players in California, USC got two of them. Oregon got eight of them. The top, again, the top 30 guys. You look at that top seven, and it's not like Oh, they can't play and they're ended up at San Jose State or Nevada, Ohio State, Alabama, Texas, Notre Dame, Georgia, Oregon, Oklahoma. That's where the top seven guys in California went. I know you don't need all of them if you're talking about, you know, if we didn't want to go on this quarterback or this guy's just not going to go to USC or stay local. But those are seven schools that you have to recruit against and and play against on the field if you want to win national championships. And so that's one of those things that just again, pops out if you're looking at at this class. Ultimately, I think it's a lot of good players, though, coming to USC. Yeah, uh, a couple things from from my perspective. 
this is not if you if you string together three or four classes like this, you are not going to have a championship level football team because in some ways this is an unusual class for USC. We've seen since Pete Carroll left, USC has had some highly uh, rated classes. And oftentimes when the classes are highly rated, it's because they're pulling in receivers and running backs and quarterbacks, right? Skill position guys who are really highly regarded. There was almost none of that in this class. There's no quarterback. There's one running back. I think he's going to be pretty good, but he's a three-star recruit. There's one wide receiver. This is not a class filled with, with elite playmakers. I'm okay with that. If USC lands some elite playmakers, either on the portal or, or certainly in the 2025 class, because generally speaking, I am not worried about USC landing elite playmakers. Even, even Clay Helton got a lot of elite playmakers while he was at USC, right? That's uh, Paul Hackett did. I mean, that's, that's not a problem for the most part. It is a problem that USC has been losing recruiting battles that it would not have lost in the past. Uh, why that is exactly, I think we have theories. I don't think we know. And, and it may very well be that it's an NIL issue and that, uh, and that USC is now competitive enough at NIL that that's not going to be a problem going forward. We'll see. That's certainly, I think, what USC believes. But, uh, but I don't know. I do know, that, I do know that you need two things in recruiting classes. One is you need elite guys who can step in and, and dominate relatively early in their careers. The elite programs always have those guys. Pete Carroll always had those guys, right? I mean, you can say that stars don't matter, but Carson Palmer and Reggie Bush and Sean Cody, and there are a lot of guys you go through those classes and you say, okay, there's a lot of guys with a lot of stars next to their names. And, and so you need that. And USC does not have that in this class. But I do agree that with the guys that this is a class where I think you're going to have some guys in the trenches that are going to turn out to be really good football players. It's a class with a lot of big bodies, uh, some guys who I think are athletic big bodies, and I think they'll be good. And don't forget, while, while, you, while Pete Carroll landed Sean Cody, and that was a huge recruiting coup for a lot of reasons, that defensive line with Sean Cody also had Mike Patterson and Kenichi Udese, who were just as good and just as important over their careers, but were not nearly uh, the same high-level recruit that Sean Cody was. There is something to be said for evaluating players and developing them. Last year, USC recruited some guys that were, I think, really underrated and I think are going to be good football players. If you look at Guys like Elijah Hughes and Sam Green, Alani Noah, Christian Pierce. These guys didn't have a ton of stars, but I think you look at you look at what we saw from them, either practice reports, spring game, or uh, or the time they had on the field, and you say, okay, those guys weren't Deuce Robinson or Zachary Branch in terms of being uh, blue chip recruits on the recruiting services, but I think some of those guys can be really good football players. So if USC have, if USC's current staff has a knack for evaluating guys who can really play, I think we're going to be pleased. And I, and I think that is the case here. Uh, I don't know how many Elijahs you can have on the same team. I don't know if there's an NCAA cap, but I think we're bumping up against it. We're going to have to think about that going forward. Uh, the other thing that occurs to me is that this is a class that has some real athleticism, a linebacker. Maybe not, guy, you know, we don't have, you don't have a Chris Claiborne, a guy who everybody knows is going to be a superstar from day one, but you have some guys who can really run and, and change direction and, 
And we'll see whether USC develops those guys. But I suspect these are guys who are under the radar. But uh, had they had another, had they had, had they been looked at a year earlier, um, these are guys who probably would have been uh, really highly recruited. So I, I'm pleased with the class overall. But USC is going to have to start winning high, uh, you know, the big time recruiting battles against the big time programs. They're going to have to start winning some of those in the years going forward. Otherwise, USC is going to look a lot like Wisconsin, uh, where you have you're pretty solid in the trenches and you're tough and, and all that, but you just don't have the athletes to match up. And that would be a terrible place for USC to be, because, like I said, everybody who's coached at USC has been able to recruit guys who can who can run and make plays. So uh, coaches need to fix that. I suspect they will. We'll see. All right. Second quarter, the new Big Ten. Um so you've got four, four West Coast teams moving over to the Big Ten. For all of my life, there had been these stereotypes of the two conferences. You had the Pac-10, later the Pac-12, which was dominated by quarterbacks and skill position guys and scoring. You had the Big Ten that was about running the football and toughness. And, you know, you play in the snow when you can't catch the ball. So they just hit people in the mouth and pick up four yards of carry. Um to what extent to what extent do those old stereotypes still hold with these four teams that are coming in and joining the current Big Ten? And what is this mix going to produce? It, it, are, the, are the West Coast schools going to have to change their style of play? Are the Big Ten schools going to have to change their style of play? Or is it going to be something in the middle? Uh, what do we expect to see going forward? Uh, Eric McKinney, what do you think? I think that you're going to have less of a, you know, the Big Ten runs the ball 75 times a game and and the Pac-12 teams coming over throw it 75 times a game. I I think you're going to find a middle ground. And I think it's also not only is it these teams joining the conference, but you're going to have to go beat a bunch of teams in the playoff, too. I mean, we're we're talking about the good teams, right? The, The teams at the top of these that feel like they're national championship contenders. You need to be physical up front, which is what football has always been. If you want to win, you have to be physical up front. The Big Ten got a bunch of praise for that, and Michigan should have because they won it with their offensive and defensive lines this year. That's what did it. Washington had the Joe Moore Award-winning offensive line. They didn't show up. Their wide receivers and their quarterback were unbelievable, but their offensive line played really, really well all year until it ran up against probably the best defensive line in the country. It wasn't as if Michigan just brought in a random, normal Big Ten defensive line and caused havoc for a Pac-12 offensive line. So I think it's going to be that. I think it's going to be who can put the best collection of talent together up front on both sides to win those games. Cause that's how you win. That's how you win those games consistently when you need to win three of them or two of them back to back in a, in a playoff style thing, when you're trying to win a, a big 10 championship game and then playoff games, you better be good up front. And so I think that's, what's going to be, you go back to Pete Carroll seems again, the the guys who get the attention, right? It's Reggie Bush, it's Mike Williams, it's all those guys. And yeah, you need them, but they're not doing it without the defensive line you mentioned. They're not doing it 
without having uh, Sam Baker and, and those guys up front where they put together really good offensive lines every year. So there are teams that go away from it and then they get found out in, in big games when they don't have it. So I, I think that's where we're going to go. You need to be able to run it. But we've even seen from the Big Ten, like Ohio State has put some dynamic passing attacks out there. Even Michigan, they don't get as much credit for it. But when they had to have some plays, they found ways to put a wrinkle out there and throw the ball a little bit with some mesh stuff and using running backs and, and all of that. So I think that that especially because coaches are moving around so much now, you don't have a guy that just lives in the pack eight or 10 or 12 for his entire career. And that's the style that everybody runs out there. You got guys moving everywhere now. And a guy that was in the big 10 last year is in the sec now. And in the, what used to be the pac 12, you know, going forward there. But I, I think, I think it's kind of all becoming the same sort of soup that everybody, everybody's eating. I mean, Dan Lanning at Oregon, right? First thing he did, we got to build up offensive line, defensive line. Lincoln Riley's finally seeming to do something about it, but certainly said it when he got to USC. We need we need big guys on on both sides. So uh, that that's my take. I, I think you're going to be able to see less of a oh that's a that's a Big Ten West offense and that's an SEC East offense and and that sort of thing going forward. Mark Culkin, what say you? Yeah, um, Kirk Ferentz might see it differently, but I think he's being pulled across the finish line <laughs> begrudgingly. Look, it, Eric, you touched on it. it. It comes down to, you think back to the Pete Carroll years, it, USC had the players. It was the size up front in the trenches, offensive line, defensive line. They went into the SEC country and walked out with a shutout at Auburn. They you know, can go down to Arkansas, beat them. They can... Go into the big, you know, in, um, into Columbus and, and beat the Buckeyes. It didn't matter. It's the fact was USC had the guys up front to play physical, but they also had the guys on the outside um, or you know standing behind the quarterback that took advantage of that size up front. So I do think that you're going to see more high scoring games in the big conference going forward. Uh, not so much because of what USC and Oregon and Washington and to a lesser extent UCLA bring to the table, but because the game has been changing. It's becoming more offensive. The Pac-12 has been known more as an offensive conference. Nick Saban even talked about it a few years ago. Um, you got to be able to score points now. You could have a good defense, but you better be able to score points. And I think that's that's even where the Big Ten, Big 18, whatever the, the big conference is right now. Um, Chip Kelly would rather just be an offensive coordinator for Ryan Day, his old quarterback at New Hampshire, because he knows that, hey, you know what? i got a pretty good offensive mind. I'll just go take advantage of the talent that Ohio State is always going to be able to recruit, and they start up front with the offensive line. And if Chip Kelly has an offensive line, he'll find a running back. And even if he have, doesn't have a top-notch quarterback, he'll he'll find whatever strength that quarterback has and use it to his advantage. So we'll see. I, I think that's going to be the difference. As long as USC gets back to patrolling the offensive and defensive line, um, doesn't matter. Just get bigger. Yeah, so 
I mean, I think there is something to this stereotype still, but it's been changing uh, over the last 10 years or so. I mean, the, I think the, the Pac-10 and the Big 12 were the first conferences to really, to really spread it out consistently, where you were playing just about every week, you were playing teams that had three, four, five wide receivers on the field and good quarterbacks. And, and it changed the way you had to play defense, right? Which is why when Jim Harbaugh comes along at Stanford and he starts lining up 37 tight end formations and running the ball off tackle, uh, it was difficult for people to deal with because they were used to having 215 pound linebackers because they needed to be to play in space. And now they're trying to stop the, uh, they're trying to stop ISO. And, and it was, it was difficult. But you saw when Harbaugh moved to the Big Ten, he, he, he brought that to the Big Ten. The Big Ten was more used to it. And very quickly, his quarterback starts lining up in the shotgun a lot. And, uh, you know, you saw it wasn't that long ago that Alabama and LSU had that, what was it, 9-6 to six or 9-3 to three, uh, game back when the SEC decided that offenses didn't matter. It was only about defense. That's not the, that's not the case anymore. So things have been changing. I do think, though, that when you add when you add these four Pac-12 teams, you just you may go from 14 to 18 teams, but you more than double the number of good offenses in the conference. And that's going to matter. Uh, Mark mentioned Kirk Ferentz and Kirk Ferentz may he can say what he wants about how they, uh, you know, they they play on both sides of the ball in Big Ten. Well, his team doesn't because he chose to have Tommy Boy as his offensive coordinator for the last four years. But the reality is that Iowa could get away with that in the old Big Ten. They wouldn't win the Big Ten, but they could win eight or nine games, despite the fact that they couldn't play offense because they played good defense. That is not going to work when you add to the schedule, say, Oregon and a Lincoln Riley led USC, because Iowa is going to give up points to those teams. You saw in their bowl game, right? They played what? Tennessee? Iowa took that deep. Their defense never gives up any points. Tennessee ran up and down the field on them and put a bunch of points on the board. Good offenses are going to move the ball and they're going to score points in modern college football. Uh, the, there, is a, there is a major advantage for offense. This is rule-based in, uh, in some ways. It's also scheme-based. Good offenses are going to score. The Big Ten didn't have very many good offenses last year. They're going to have more going forward. And so the Big Ten, the Big Ten is going to have to adjust. It's certainly the case the Pac-12 is going to have to adjust because you are going to you are going to still run into more power running teams than you'd see in the in the Pac-12 on a regular basis. You're going to have to get bigger and stronger to deal with that. So uh, I think there, you know, I, I think there's something to the stereotypes. I think that there's going to be a coming together where a lot of these Big Ten teams decide they need to get better at opening up their offenses and scoring more points, and the Pac-12 teams are going to bulk up. Uh, on both sides of the ball a little bit. Um, but this is just a continuation of the trends that we've seen for some time, which is that uh, you can't win games 10 to seven anymore. Like Woody Hayes would win games 10 to seven. John McKay would win games 10 to seven. You're not going to win many games scoring 10 points anymore. You're going to have to put points on the board. And, and the big 10 knows that, but with the addition of Washington, Oregon, USC, to a lesser extent, UCLA, uh, it just got more imperative that you score points than it was last year. Um, so there'll be some changes, but, um, and there'll be a lot more good football games, right? I mean, that's, that's the one thing when you look at, 
you look at the weekly Big Ten schedule and you're seeing a whole lot of teams with really fancy names playing each other on a weekly basis. So it's going to be a lot of fun, I think. Well, that's a good point, Chris. Which part of the Super Bowl did you enjoy more yesterday, the first half or the second half? Uh, I enjoyed the second half. The first half was sloppy, right? I mean, the... the, It was defensive, right? Well, it, it was, but I mean... It was also sloppy, right? You had a lot of mistakes. You had you had points left on the field, but but yeah, I mean, even even for people who love defense, and I love defense, watching somebody like Patrick Mahomes do what he does is is pretty special. Um, and it's not like the it's not like the defenses got dominated. That was a that was a pretty balanced football game. But but yeah, I mean, the, the Big Ten is going to have a lot of good football games this year and and it's going to be a lot of fun to watch so if nothing else if nothing else where i mean anytime you have anytime you have the ability to see ohio state michigan nebraska and penn state play teams like washington usc oregon i mean that's fun so uh the new big 10 will be more exciting than the old big 10 and the old big 10 uh was already a lot of fun I think you have to win both ways, though, right? You you have to be able to, and and Lincoln Riley does talk about that. There's some things he says that that's very much coach speak, but but when he says like, look, you you sometimes you got to win a game forty five forty two, and sometimes you got to win a game thirteen to ten, and I think that the the move to the Big Ten because the weather thing is it, it's going to pop up at some point. At some point, USC is getting a game late with weather, and you got to. Uh, I mean. I, we've seen big dead games where quarterbacks are warming up before the game and the ball's going out in the stands because they can't throw it 15 yards without the wind grabbing it. So that all comes back to the offensive line being big and, and tough up front. And I don't think that's something where USC has always had success, but the drive has always been there. Coaches have always known we've got to, we've got to get that done there. And so I don't think that, I don't think that changes anything. USC is not planning on going out there and saying, hey, we're going to line 11 wide receivers up and you guys can't, you, you're not going to be able to defend us. So that that's kind of the the thing. And I think that's maybe where it is. But USC's had, they, they've had 20 to 13 games in the Pac-12. They've had all that stuff. I mean, the idea that the, every Pac-12 game is 56-52 and every Big Ten game is 13-10, that's just not... That's not the case. If you're a really good team, you can win both those kinds of games. Yeah. Right. And, and look, one of, go ahead, Mark. I was just say, Eric, Eric went and spent like, he said he spent three minutes, five minutes chasing down some, from some final scores from the big 10. And um, yeah, it was really evident that there's some pretty high scoring games in the big conference, despite the national perception that's out there. And Graham Harrell is the offensive coordinator at Purdue, right? Like, don't tell me that, Oh, we only care about, defense like Graham Harrell obviously has the reputation now after not having a ton of su- success at USC but that's an offense according to you bring in and say we're going to throw it everywhere we're going to put points up we're going to we're going to do all of this like those guys those guys exist in in the Big Ten there's a thought of hey we we need to score points and, and we need to spread things out we need to be dynamic offensively I just think the weather thing is a little bit overplayed. Uh, the wind doesn't matter what conference you're playing. If it's a windy day outside, doesn't matter what part of the country you're in. It's going to affect quarterbacks. I mean, people forget the Pac-12 conference. You play up in Pullman, Washington, in November. It's snowing, sleet, rainy, windy, cold. You're playing in the desert in September. It's 110 degrees at night. 
you don't get that type of difference in the Midwest. I'm sorry, you just don't. So advantage to USC and the teams that are coming from the Pac-12 to the Midwest. Yeah, I think I think you're you're partly right, Mark. There is there is a diversity in the Pac or the Pac-12 that really didn't exist anywhere else. Um, yeah. Because you're right, you could get you you play Seattle one week and 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 in Tempe the next, and you're you're talking about very different, uh, very different climates. But it is the case that you're going to have more very cold, very windy games in the Big Ten than than you had in the Pac-12. And you know, I I went. I grew up in Southern California. I went to college in Kansas City. I'll tell you, you get late in the season in a place like Kansas City, and that and that weather can have that weather will have an impact that it does not have when you grow up in Southern California. It just doesn't. Um, and and part of the reason part of the reason that offenses have become so good is because of this new RPO game. You have to be able to run the ball for that to work, right? If if teams don't have to respect your running game, then then the RPO isn't going to to be as deadly as it would otherwise be, and, which is why, it, with with most of Lincoln Riley's best offenses, he had a really good power running game, right? I mean, he at Oklahoma had a bunch of had a bunch of teams that ran the ball really well, you know, Samaj Perrine and guys like that, two hundred forty pound guys running over people. So uh, USC is going to have to get bigger and stronger up front. Lincoln Riley already knew that, and they're going to have to get better. Um, but, um, but Kirk Ferenz, watch it. You can say what you want, but if you plan to win a lot of 13 to 10 games against Lincoln Riley or against Oregon or against Washington, we'll see. I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, okay, let's move to, let's move to halftime. Let's uh, – little history – uh, since we just finished uh, the, this year's recruiting class, let's talk about the best recruiting class in USC history. Uh, all right, who's up first? Let's go, uh, Mark. I think it's I think it's your turn. Give me the best recruiting class in USC history. Oh, um, I actually thought it was Eric's turn, but that's all right. I'll take the ball run. So you can look at two thousand two. You got you had a lot of players on that team that uh that made an impact at USC. By the way, did ever does everybody realize that Mike Williams, BMW, he was a three star, pretty good player though. Um, you had a lot of players on that team. Again, ended up part of that thirty four game win streak. So, Dominic Bird, Fred Matua, Dallas Sartre, Lawan Ramsey, Darnell Bing was part of the two thousand two class. They're up there in the running. You can look at 2003, Reggie Bush's class, um, who had everybody. Hey, if you name every class, nobody else gets the same thing. Those aren't even my favorite classes. Those aren't, I'm just kind of, kind of prefacing it out there. Those aren't my favorite classes. My favorite class is the one, whatever class put out the 1978 Trojan roster. I'm just going to read off the names. Marcus Allen, Chip Banks, Rich Dimmler, Ronnie Lott, Anthony Munoz, Charles White, Brad Buddy, uh, Gary Cobb, Larry Brazil, Paul McDonald, Ricky Gay, Gray, Ray Butler, Steve, Steve Busick. Um, and I think there was also a footnote at the bottom of that story, that article that I read. All 22 starters played in the NFL. That was a 1978 roster for USC. Uh, they didn't have the transfer portal back then. They didn't have NIL back then. Freshman pretty much sat on the bench. So I'm going to say, what was that, the 
75 recruiting class, 74, somewhere in there. That's my favorite. Some good names. Eric McKinney. All right, here's the problem with that as a recruiting class discussion. The the roster I'll give you, the recruiting that those guys did not all come in in the same recruiting class. So if if you want to go and pick, right? So 76, I think. And again, it's tough because freshman eligibility and when did they get letter winners and you can't really go through the on three recruiting classes and and find all this. But yeah, I, look, I jotted down 76. Brad Buddy, Anthony Munoz, Charles White, Pat, Pat Howell, I think all, I think all in 76. And I'm sure people watching this have, can just recite from 71 to 79 and, and everything in between who came in, in in all those years. So yeah, the answer is probably back there, maybe the 71 class that was involved in both the 72 and 74 national championships. I guess that it's those of the classes that I can kind of go back through and either covered or watched or, or followed. Uh, you you want to give a, a tip of the hat to, to Carson Palmer and Troy Polamalu both coming in the same class in 99, but I, this is one of those where there's an answer and then there's, well, do I want to kind of go off the, off the rails and find something else and, and something interesting. But 2003 is, is the one that jumps out as, as the answer, right? You've got Lendale and Reggie and two other running backs, Chauncey, Chauncey Washington and Desmond Reed in that class where injuries and all of that, if they don't happen, they turn into a pretty good, probably tandem of, of running backs too. But Terrell Thomas at, at corner, Sam Baker and Lawrence Jackson on, on either line, Steve Smith at wide receiver. So that, there's, there's a bunch of guys that, that played in there. 2005 is a sneaky one for me, just because there aren't a ton of misses in that class. You had a bunch of guys that contributed all the way through. I think more misses in, in 2003, but. Reggie and Lendell in, in the same class at, at running back and Steve Smith in there too. Like I'll, I'll go with 2003. That's always going to be the safe answer, but I do. I was with Mark on, on going back. There's a class back there that absolutely is. No, this, this, this is, this is the one. Yeah. I, so the, the problem, I had the same problem because I, I know that 2000, uh, that 2000, excuse me, the 1979 team, that's the one I was focused on, uh, Mark, had four NFL Hall of Famers on it. It's crazy. 64 Pro Bowls. Now, by the way, everybody talks about the 2001 Miami team, and they should, right? Unbelievable talent. 17 first-round picks, uh, you know, like four or five running backs that were that were really excellent pros, probably Pro Bowlers. That in 2001 Miami team, 46 Pro Bowls. The 1979 USC team, 64. Four NFL Hall of Famers. The O-line alone had 30 Pro Bowls represented. Both starting running backs won the Heisman Trophy. The 1979 USC team might be the most talented college football team of all time. The difficulty is you can't find information on those recruiting classes. I spent an hour today trying to figure out even if you can figure out which guys, okay, so so Marcus Allen was in this class, Ronnie Lott was in this class. What you can't do is get rankings that 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 mean anything. So it's hard to it's hard to do the comparison. I cheated. So, 
Yeah, the, the, the late 70s roster was crazy. The fact that USC actually lost a game in 1979 is astounding to me. Uh, you would think that they would they would have won the NFC West. But in the classes that you can actually rank... Um, well, in, seven, the- in 79, they tied Stanford, right? And according to Mark, that's as good as a win. So I, I don't know if we can go back. They got them a national championship. Well, Mark was Mark was in favor of a one point loss to Stanford, not a tie. Oh, right. But yes, you're right to point that out. Look, the the 2003 the 2003 recruiting class was pretty astounding. And the amazing thing, you know, you mentioned some of the names: Reggie Lindell, Terrell Thomas, Eric Wright, Philly Moala, Ryan Khalil, Steve Smith, Lawrence Jackson, Sam Baker. That's a pretty good group. And the and the the crowning jewel of that class, Whitney Lewis. Just imagine if Whitney Lewis turned out to be the guy they thought he was going to be. Um, that's a pretty extraordinary class. And, and obviously the linebacker class in 2005 um, is, is pretty difficult to, to overlook. But So I'm going to go 2003, but I, I, I'm with Mark. I just couldn't figure out how to, how to rank those late 70s classes. But that's a roster that you're probably never going to see again. And, um, and, and, and just extraordinary. And I can't wait, right? USC actually beat Alabama one year, the same year that they split with Alabama, the national championship. 79. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, 70, wasn't 79. Was it 79? I think it was was 79 that they won 24-14 at Alabama, I think. I'd have to go look it up, but I'm pretty sure that's right. And Alabama then. um, The power of Stanford works. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. Stanford's the problem. If you can just get past that, you don't even have to get past Stanford. You just have to play Stanford close. There you go. Um, okay. All right. So, uh, again, we encourage you to hit the like and red subscriber buttons. Please do so. And I'm told, I've never done it before, but I'm told that you can actually listen to Inside the Trojans Huddle on many available podcast sites. Is that true, Eric? Can you do that? Should be. Should be okay. true. I, look, look, you're gonna you're gonna get run for this. Seventy eight, they beat Alabama, 24-14. 79 didn't play Alabama. Had had the tie against uh, right. against Stanford. I I did. I'm not gonna pretend that I have that off the top of my head. I I did look that up. Um, well, any, I mean, any chance to tell you you're wrong on this? I, like, I'm not gonna take that. I would jump at the chance too. Uh, they come along oh, oh so uh, rarely, but. Uh, and it's good you did it because uh, you're right. I was going to get trashed by everybody uh, watching this show on the internet or listening on the uh, podcast sites, apparently. And again, know. we're going to have someone on the site who's going to be able to go, okay, the 74 class was all these guys. 75 yeah. class was all like, we, the, those those people are out there. We love them. If they do it well enough, said, he would have caught this right off the bat. If they do it well enough, then uh, they'll be our fourth next week. So uh, there's uh, something to be excited about. We are SC family. Uh, okay, third quarter. So we we talk about recruiting all the time, and and for good reason because recruiting is extraordinarily important. I mean, you, no matter how good a coach you are, if you don't have players, you're not going to win. But usually, when we're talking about recruiting, we're talking about things like NIL. We're talking about uh, we're talking about coaches that develop players. We're talking about history and tradition, all that stuff. I want to talk about something a little bit different. I want to talk about what makes a great recruiter because. There are coaches that are known as fantastic recruiters. Sometimes sometimes they don't do a particularly jo- good job of coaching those players, right? 
in USC's past, Ted Tolmer. Ted Tolmer brought in some guys, and those guys went on to win Rose Bowls or play in a lot of Rose Bowls, win one uh, under Larry Smith. Ron Zook at Florida. Ron Zook at Florida put together unbelievable collections of talent, and then it took Urban Meyer to come in and, and dominate with them. So there's some guys who are great recruiters. So let, let's talk about that. First of all, what makes a great recruiter? Putting aside, you know, big bags of money the way they do it at some schools these days. What makes a great recruiter? What are some of the best? Uh, who are some of the best recruiters you've seen? And uh, any stories that uh, that you've heard that, uh, that you can share on the topic? Uh, Eric. So the the people that recruit the best, the coaches that recruit the best, are consistent. I think it's it's that kind of consistency. They never miss. They never miss an opportunity to get a touch on somewhere. Some somehow you connect something that's going on back to the guy that you want. And and there's a lot of guys where there's a lot of coaches where it's just okay during this period I'm going to make a call. I can I can go to their school now. I can do whatever. But. The coaches who are good find a way to connect everything back. The coaches who are good, what really stands out is when you find out who's important and why they're important in in that kid's life, right? Uh, that that becomes so much more to them when you remember they've got some second uncle from whatever that likes this football team, and you ask about that or or whatever that is. Like finding those family connections that just go beyond you hear you can hear kids say it all the time i can talk to them like a friend like it's not just hey we want you to come to this school we want you to come to this school if you can find a way to go around that right there's never like a especially early on there's never a direct you're gonna play this and here's our x's and o's and and all of that you find a way to get in and and become part of the family uh that's that's what's key and some guys have it and some guys don't. With some coaches, it's a business meeting every single time they talk to the kid. And and it's not it's not really anything they can do because it it might work with some of them and it's just your personality because at the end of the day and maybe this is the very first thing. You can't be fake. You can't fake how you're going to recruit a kid and then all of a sudden you're coaching them differently than how you recruited them. They can see pretty quickly what that looks like the the best for me the best guy that that I've ever seen or heard of do it was at Orgeron and and that was because he was always going to find a way he was always going to find a way he was always going to get the guy he, like he went into it knowing okay when I coach you this is what we're going to do and and he found ways to get in that other coaches wouldn't be able to find the the idea of stories and all that, I'm sure there's a million of them and just nothing's like jumping. The the one that, that got broadcast, I think, I think maybe it was two years ago when he was on a show talking about Adrian Peterson and his dad could watch, his dad was in jail and he could watch him if he was at Oklahoma and at Ogeron. I, I don't know how much of this is true or not, but throughout floated the idea of, yeah, we thought about how can we transfer this guy to a to an LA prison so that he could see Adrian Peterson play at USC that I mean that you know that's obviously such a very specific idea but his brain was always thinking like that how do we how do we make it easy for this guy to say to say yes to come uh to USC and 
he was he was unbelievable, unbelievable at, at being able to do that. Mark Tolkien. Yeah, Coach O, Coach Orgeron is probably the uh, the best recruiting coach, at least that I've seen at USC in action uh, from a distance. Um, Eric touched on all the points. It's when it comes to recruiting, it's all about developing relationships, finding that. Uh, and when you're in sales, you're taught find that emotional hot button. What is it that is going to you know, open the door to give you that, that the better chance that somebody else who you're, you're competing against. Uh, so once you're, once you're able to, to figure that out, um, it, it makes the job a lot easier. There, as far as recruiting stories, we, we've heard of, you know, coaches being in the, in the house of a recruit and then all of a sudden another coach will show up at the front door and they'll sneak them out the back door. So that coach at the front door is like, what did I show up for? I remember back in the day, um, Robert Woods, the wide receiver from uh, Sarah, having to tell a, a coach from UCLA no on more than one occasion. And when he told him, stop recruiting me, he kept recruiting him. So, again, it's just it's a matter of listening. Um, USC at times listens well. Other times they'll put a kid in a helicopter who's definitely afraid of helicopters. So when, when you're out there recruiting, again, just listen. And then once you've listened, if you're not sure what you heard, ask, because part of the communication process is making sure that person is listening to you, understands what you're saying. And I think everything that Eric touched on um, is, is what it comes down to. So you need to have effective communicators. So I, I suspect that most of the really great recruiting stories are stories that don't get told publicly, right? Because there's there's usually something questionable about them. I, I know that um, a good family friend of mine, Rod McNeil, I've interviewed Rod a couple of times on my, uh, on my solo show, but when Rod was being recruited uh, at a Baldwin Park High School back, I think in 69, uh, Rod was probably, I mean, he was probably the top running back recruit in the country that year. And for good reason, you know, 6'2", 215, he was a star hurdler. He was, he was the man. And, um, and it was a different, it was a different era back then, but you know, there was Rod tells a story about when, uh, he got a call from Bill Cosby inviting him to come to a, come to a party at Cosby's house and don't look like that Mark. And then they didn't know in 1969, they didn't know he was a good guy. He was a family guy then. Um, and, uh, so Jello and <laughs> yeah, that was probably before the Jello pudding pops, but anyway, um, it, it, I, I was not highly recruited as a football player. And so I don't have any stories from my own recruitment as a football player, but I learned something important about recruiting when I was in law school, because the way it works is after your first year, law firms will, will come and they'll do these on-campus interviews. And, and that's the way you get a summer job. And that summer job is usually the way you get a job when law school is over. If you went to law school, you know that if not, you probably don't. Here's why I bring it up because there was, there was one partner from a firm uh, an SC guy, actually. So shout out to Brett Williamson if you're watching, Brett. Brett went out of his way to to have lunch with me and connect with me in a way that nobody else did. And ultimately, even though a lot of these law firms kind of look the same, they probably are all the same, frankly. Um, I had to say no to a handful of people. And the question is, who can I say no to and feel okay about? It? And the one person I couldn't say no to and feel good about it was Brett. 
because Brett had gone out of out of his way to forge a personal relationship with me and 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 the thought of getting him on the phone and saying Brett I don't want to go work there was uh, was too difficult and so while I couldn't really distinguish between Brett's firm and some of the others uh, it was that personal connection that led me to to go there these these high school kids are going to have to say no to everybody but one coach and if there's a coach that they think about and say, I don't know that I, I don't know that I can say no to Ed Orgeron. Um, there may be a lot of other reasons to pick other schools, but that's going to be really tough to, for them to, to overlook. And, and so when we're talking about the personal connection, I think that's part of it. It's, it's um, can you look this guy in the eye and say, no, I don't want to play for you. And if it's, if it's Ed Orgeron, the answer to that is usually no, not always. But oftentimes it is. If it's Pete Carroll, the answer is usually no. And if you ever talked with Pete one-on-one, you'd understand why that is, right? Because you meet Pete, he has no idea who you are, but you feel like you're the most important person in the world while he, to, to Pete Carroll while he's talking to you. You can understand why a recruit gets to know that guy and says, yeah, I, I don't think I can say no to Pete. Um, so... Whether or not USC's current coaches are good at that, I suspect some of them are very good, some of them are less good. I don't know. But, but, but part of what we do here is we talk about all the reasons why USC doesn't land kids. There are all kinds of reasons for, for recruits to choose other schools. Not all of those reasons are cash in a bag, but there are all kinds of other reasons. Um, but one thing that's hard, I think, for us to get a handle on, because you're not, you're not seeing those interactions in recruits' living rooms, is it's hard to know who, who are the coaches that come in there and guys just aren't going to be able to say no to them, uh, because that's a really important piece of the puzzle that's kind of hidden from the public, it seems to me. Uh, okay, any other thoughts on uh, recruiting? I do think what we're talking about, that connection – Obviously, we want, you know, NIL is a huge deal, but I I don't think it's all the way to just sitting down at a table and handing envelopes back and forth. I still think that you are saying I'm going to play for this guy and, and I want to have a connection. I, I do think that it's still important. And a lot of these guys are going places because there is still a connection with the coaches. So. Maybe at some point you're just opening envelopes and looking at numbers and yep, that's that's the one, but I don't think we're quite there yet. I don't know. I, I think I do think we are there right now. And I, I can use this recruiting class as an example for USC. At one point you had one of the top receivers in the state committed USC up until the eleventh hour. And then you hear the answer, well, I'm I flip my commitment. I'm going to this school because I like the way they develop wide receivers. And then you go look at the NFL rosters and go, where are those NFL wide receivers? That's because that coach convinced him. I can, I can recruit wide receivers and I can develop wide receivers and you buy into a a recruiter that tells you that. With an envelope. Um, Same thing with, look, you, you had a top 10 player from the state of California committed to USC, his dream school. And then 10 minutes later, hyperbole, he wasn't committed to his dream school anymore. Again. Well, well, look, I don't think there's any question that NIL is playing a factor in recruiting and a big one. And and to some extent, that's always been the case. Before, it wasn't called NIL. It was just impermissible benefits. But 
um, you know, putting the Trans Am in, um, uh, in Eric Dickerson's driveway the night before signing day. Um, but uh, the personal connection still matters. If you are not competitive uh, in NIL, then that seems to me is like not being competitive in salary in, in the business world. They may like you a lot. They're probably not going to choose you. If you are competitive, then that allows these other factors to come into play. So uh, I, I think that I think some of these guys uh, that that don't choose USC are may have chosen USC in the past, if not for far more attractive NIL packages somewhere else. Um, but this personal connection still matters. I chose a player on both sides of the ball just to make the comparison. Because yeah, we but know you know what? We know that Alex Grinch is a yoke on the defensive side of the ball. When it comes to Lincoln Riley and quarterbacks and wide receivers, that's a no-brainer. I agree with you, but I, I would make two comments. One is even offensive players want to have a, a, a defense because they want to win, and, and you don't want to go somewhere you're not going to win. The second thing is uh, Cameron Fountain, who uh, USC Georgia, who's a fantastic prospect. You listen to you listen to his mom talk. And 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 she's talking. She's not talking about things like nil. She's talking about things. She's talking about long term things that matter. But it's also clear that there is a trust and a relationship developed between the the coaching staff and that family that was that was meaningful. So you have to have both. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Let's go on to the fourth quarter. This is usually where we do viewer questions. But once again, I forgot to ask for viewer questions. So I'm just going to supply my own. And I'll be honest with you. I kind of like supplying my own anyway. Doesn't mean you shouldn't go on the WeRSC forum and, and ask your questions. Because if so, uh, if so, we'll get those in here. But uh, we're going to go with Arla just 10 questions. And here's the deal. Some people question whether it's possible for me to be both a participant uh, with my own, you know, with my own paraphernalia on the line and be a fair judge? And the answer is, in my case, yes, because uh, because my credibility is beyond question. But most of the time, you would say probably not. So today, the competition won't involve me, although I may chime in. It's simply mono e mono, Koken versus McKinney, best of 10, okay? Now, Mark, last week, you lost a point on a question. Usually, that's not part of the rules. But there are some answers that are so bad that it will lead to negative points. So we're gonna we're gonna keep that again this this week. I just hope it won't be necessary. Okay. We, don't right. involved. we should be good. Yeah. All right, here we go. Question number one. We'll go back and forth. McKinney, you start with question number one. Who's the best player in USC's 2024 recruiting class? I think it's Elijah Newby. I think I think that guy can play a linebacker and do a bunch of different things. Okay. Yeah, so I'm just taking a different look at this question. I'm going to go with the guy who's been committed the longest, never wavered since July of 2022. Joey Olson, tight end. I like both answers. I really do. I like Joe. I like Joey Olson because he was he was uh, he was committed for a long time. He didn't waver. I do think he's going to be a good football player. But I think if you had to pick a guy who's uh, who's, who's a future All-American candidate, it's going to be Elijah Newby uh, or Cameron Fountain, which would have been my choice, I think. So I'm going to give one point to Eric McKinney, one nothing McKinney. All right, question number two. What are we Mark, playing? Start, what's what are, that? What are we playing for today, by the way? Uh, honor. Yeah, honor. I'm not going to. 
I could I could offer up something I owned before because I could rig the game to make sure that I won, but I'm not going to do that now. So it's just honor and respect. Whoever loses has none of uh, of either of those things. All right, number two. If Eric Henderson got into a fight with Paul Bunyan, how would Paul Bunyan lose? Are we going back and forth, or am I first every time? No, we're going back and forth. Mark Hulkin. Uh, wow. How would he lose? <laughs> Paul Bunyan had a blue ox and an axe, right? He had both of those things, yes. Yeah. And, a, and, and a size advantage. I mean, Eric Henderson's a big guy, but he's not Bunyan. So he's got no, a size advantage and an axe and an ox. I, I think he would use a swim maneuver underneath and catch Paul Bunyan where uh, he doesn't want to get caught. Okay. Beat him that way. Okay. That's legit. So he's using the technique he teaches. I like that. I like that. Aaron Donald benefited from it. Now Eric Henderson does. Eric McKinney, how would Eric Henderson, and the, look, the reason I ask such a ridiculous question is because Eric Henderson has already achieved almost Paul Bunyan-esque proportions for, for USC fans. The guy walks in and immediately, immediately becomes the most popular assistant coach since Ed Orgeron, it seems to me. So how is Eric Henderson going to take down Paul Bunyan? McKinney? Yeah, Mark was on the right track initially when he was listing that. It's it's a surprise. He doesn't see it coming. It's a bull it's the bull rush. It's a bull rush. The bull rush. Now that's um okay, that's look, here's the thing. I think I you guys were both off track, and so I'm not actually gonna award a point here. Here's the reason. He's gotta turn it into a battle of attrition. Bunyan's too big, he's too strong. But here's the thing about Bunyan. He's been on top for too long. He's gotten soft. He's gotten lazy. He doesn't work the way he the way he needs to anymore. And with Eric Henderson, you're talking about a guy who puts in dog work, right? That's that's his thing. He's going so he's got to he's going to have to drag Bunyan into the deep waters. And and if he gets him if he gets him worn out enough, I think he can win by rear naked choke, and and Bunyan will tap out. So no points for either one. It's still one nothing McKinney. Question number three. We had to. And by the way, viewers, we had to change this question. We had no idea UCLA was going to hire their head coach so quickly. Um, so, Deshaun Foster, good hire, bad hire. What do you think? McKinney, I think you're up. So, this is a bad hire, but because it's UCLA, I think it's it's a good hire if if we are judging it on who they could go out and get. I think this is probably one of those... D minus initial hires that probably ends up being better than if they had gone and gotten an A minus name and and maybe won a little bit more of today. He's gonna get a local bump. That they, they the the seven on seven coaches, the high school coaches are gonna like him there. And honestly, he's gonna show up to work at least four days a week, which puts him ahead of Chip Kelly. Tolkien, what do we think of this hire? Yeah, he's a Band-Aid hire. He's not a good hire. He's not a, band, he's not a bad hire. He's a Band-Aid. UCLA had zero opportunity to go out and find a legitimate head coach from the pool of coaches available based on the timing of Chip Kelly saying bye-bye. So, I, I, look, I hope Deshaun Foster does well. Good luck to the young man. Um, but, look... <laughs> The Bruins needed somebody who cared about being a Bruin. They found one. There's there is somebody out there who cares. Sean <laughs> I want to know who's going to be his offensive coordinator. 
Well, I hope it's Graham Harrell. He's already made him. he's already made an appearance in the show tonight, but I think Graham Harrell back in LA would be a very solid choice. Uh, so here's the deal. I think you're you're both you're both right in the sense that that UCLA typically does not hire big name coaches because they're not willing to go out and chase after them. The one exception in my lifetime was their last hire, right? When when they hired Chip Kelly, they outbid Florida for him. And this was a this was the hottest hire that year. And I thought, I thought, you know what? That's that's gonna be a problem. Chip is going to be a problem, at UCLA. It turns out he wasn't really the problem. USC had all kinds of problems during Chip's tenure. Chip wasn't one. Uh, and so, you know, if if you're in a position where you don't pay a lot for coaches, you don't have NIL packages that you can offer recruits, and you only kind of care about football a little bit, then hiring the uh, hiring the longtime assistant who is a star running back at your school probably makes some sense. He he as as uh, as Mark pointed out, he he cares, right? This is a guy that loves UCLA football and. It's hard to find somebody like that. So uh, I suppose I suppose you go with it and see what happens. Uh, now, I'm going to award the point to Mark Culkin because he did point out that almost nobody cares about UCLA football, and they're lucky to find one. But I almost took a point away, Mark, because you said you hope that he does well. And I think wishing well to a UCLA coach is a pretty significant offense. I'm just showing that I am an empathetic person when I when I'm Well, I think we I think we know that from listening to you every week. But uh okay, so we're tied at one. We're gonna go to uh question number four. Best character in movie history. Eric McKinney, who do you got? Well, based on last week, I felt like I could cheat and and say Maverick and and go in for you, but I also feel like that's cheating the game if I do that, and I've got to give my answer. I'm I'm gonna go with the dude. Hey, good, I like it. All right, Mark Holkin, one with the big Lebowski. Is that what he went with? Yeah, that's my understanding. Yeah, yeah, yep. John Denver, Breakfast Club. He is the best character ever. Two very good choices. I like those choices. They're both wrong. The The right answer is Doc Holliday from Tombstone. That's the right answer. Um, he should have won. Not only should he have won the, the Academy Award that year for Best Actor, they should have given it to him the next year for the same role, even though a new movie didn't come out. That's how good it was. Uh, so uh, I'm going to award myself a point, even though I'm not participating, and we're still tied at one. Okay. Yeah, but my, but my, character, my character stood up to authority. Got the girl in the end and got everybody around him to gravitate towards him. Mark, I got to tell you, look, I think we should- I have not played this game a lot. I've not played it a lot. One of the rules I've been able to infer is you you can't you cannot talk back and argue with Chris. Again, it's not written. But I've I've picked up on that a little bit. If, if you want to twice. get I'm points, touching on, I'm touching on Chris's lawyer size. Like, you know what? I appreciate that from Mark. If you want to finish the game, you don't argue balls and strikes. Okay, <laughs> you don't do it. You don't come out and kick dirt because you thought the ball was outside. You don't. That's a perfect lead into one of the next questions. <laughs> it is. It is. Well, there's no dirt, but everybody will see why that is. All right. Question number five in this one-to-one tie. It's very exciting. A lot of points being left on the board. It's sort of like the first half of uh, the Super Bowl yesterday. All right. Does today's athlete respond better to a Ted, a Ted Lasso style coach rather than a Bobby Knight style coach? And why? Whose turn is it? I don't remember. 
think it's my turn. You made me go twice in a row. Again, not knocking you. You're doing an unbelievable job. Yeah, yeah. No, I I appreciate that. And I think everybody agrees. Okay, Mark, go ahead. You can start us off. Ted Lasso or Bobby Knight for today's athlete? I think they respond better to the Ted Lasso, but I think we need more Bobby Knight type of coaching, or at least somewhere in the middle there. All right, why do we need more Bobby Knight style of coaching? Uh, Because... Young men, and people in particular, like discipline. They just don't know it. And think about it. You growing up, me growing up as a kid, if I didn't have discipline, I'm not sitting here in front of you right now because I probably (laughs) ended up somewhere that I shouldn't have ended up. So I think you need discipline. You don't need, you know, throwing chairs. You don't need any of those types of antics. But I do think you need a hard ass, especially when you're playing football. Discipline matters. And at the end of the day, after you've kicked their butts up and down the, you know, up and down the field, you put your arm around them. You tell them, "This is why I did it. I appreciate you. I'm putting pressure on you because you need pressure to respond." All right. So one vote for the uh, chair throwing. Uh, Eric McKinney, what do you think? I I was going to say chairs have had it too good for too long. They are getting lazy at this point. Uh, it's. It's both. It's both. I mean, that, that's what Mark got to at the end, right? Like you, you have to have, you have to be able to reach both types of players because you're always going to have both types of players. And that what, that's what makes a good coach is if you can reach everyone who needs different things equally, get the best out of everybody. That, I mean, that's a Ted Lasso style answer for sure. But I do, I do want some, I want some Bobby Knight in my program. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, look you you look at the uh, you look at the most successful college football coach, maybe of all time, or certainly since um, since Bear Bryant, and he certainly strikes me as more of a Bobby Knight than a Ted Lasso. I, not 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 out of control, right? Not throwing things, not striking people, but um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of Ted Lasso and Nick Saban. Uh, you might say there was some Ted Lasso and Pete Carroll. And that may be true, although he was able to to demand more of his guys than uh, than you expect from a player's coach, right? I mean, the USC coach that most resembled Ted Lasso, both in competence and X's and O's and uh, and an attitude, is Clay Helton, right? I mean, if if the if the Ted Lasso style worked in in college football, then Clay Helton should have been should have been golden, but um, but I'm not sure that he was. So. Uh, I think you're both right on Bobby. Go ahead, uh, McKinney. Well, you want to you want to speak? Pete Carroll, wanna... right? Pete Carroll had his guys read a book about tennis. Like that was that was his key to to all of it, right? I mean, that's that's as Ted Lasso as a football coach can get. I think. Yeah, great book, by the way. The Inner Game of Tennis. If you haven't read it, I don't care anything about tennis, but that's not the point. Um, right. And there and 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 uh, Steve Kerr uh, was a big fan. I think Phil Jackson was a fan. I think it, it, it's it's a book that uh, has meant a lot to a lot of uh, to a lot of teachers. But um, uh, okay, two good answers, but they were both basically the same answer. So no points are awarded. It's still tied at one, and we're going into question number six. Baseball players have walk-on songs these days when they approach a batter's box. Fighters have their entrance songs. This hasn't reached football yet, but it should. Give me any Trojan football player, past or present, and give me the appropriate walk-on song. Mark Hoken, go first. Yeah, I actually did a lot, little bit of research for this one, and I could have picked a lot of players or a lot of different songs, but I figured, you know what? Um, Todd Marinovich, Sublime, Smoke Two Joints. <laughs> 
Okay. I think we understand where that's coming from. Eric McKinney. I Look, I'm going to be honest, Chris, and you can take a point away from me. I went through all of these and I thought I got them all and I skipped this one. So I am absolutely uh, having to come up with something off the cuff. Can, let, let me get, let's get to 10 and I'll have something by the end of it. Or I can go, I got to go now. All right, hold on, hold on. So you're going to, I mean, I got to, I got to riff because now I have to come up with a good answer because Mark's is actually good. As soon as I saw I missed this, I thought, well, Mark's going to choke this one away and I'll be able to just glide <laughs> over it. No, no, ridiculous Eric, expectation. Smoke a joint, Eric. Come back and answer it after. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I mean, you, you know, like Lendell, there's a song called Thunder. Like that's, that seems easy. That seems easy. I'll go with that because it's safe and it moves it along. I'm not proud of it, but it's, it's the easiest answer. All right. And, and, and there's nothing wrong. Look, sometimes you come in unprepared and you do your best. I'm proud of you. Not, I'm not proud of you for your answer. No, how could you be? And I'm not, and I'm not proud of you for asking for special dispensation. Like, like it's third and eight, and you tell the officials, "Can we not run this third and eight play right now? Can we do it at the minute and a half play quarter? clock?" Yeah, I don't like that either. But you still gutted it up. You gave an answer, and 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 we were able to move on. That's fine. Uh, Mark Hogan's getting the point. But here's here's the thing: Didn't Snoop Dogg have a song? Drop it like it's hot. I was thinking that for Brad Walker, and I know that's deeply unfair to Brad Walker. It is not his fault that Reggie pitched that football, but that's the first thing that I thought about when I thought about this question. My second thought was Troy Polamalu and the, that song that um, The Rock sang in Disney's Moana, You're Welcome. And I thought about that because you've got the same hair and the same godlike ability to do just about anything at any time. So that struck me as deeply appropriate. Um, but I'm not a part of this competition. Mark Tolkien is, and he's now up two to one. All right. Question number seven. Zachariah Branch is running track this spring. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And what will be his best 100 meter time this season? Eric McKinney. I think it's a, I think it's a good thing. I like when guys run track. The interesting thing is that now, I don't want to don't want to give away the next one, but it's it's not a position where USC has a ton of guys. You're working in a new quarterback. You want kind of to develop all that stuff. There, Zachariah Ranch, I assume, is going to get asked to do a whole lot this fall. Receiver, probably running a little bit, special teams, all of that. So, if he, die, I know track is something where. We saw Adoree Jackson be able to do a little bit of football also and and maybe play both at the same time. Uh, Ultimately, yeah, I'm going to land on it's a good thing. There's a little interesting. Uh, The best time, I think he's got a 10-1 in him. 10-10. That would be a heck of a time, but he might. I think he had the record for Nevada high school, uh, all-time record for Nevada high school. You'd have to shave some off of that. But, but yeah, because he was at 10-3, I think. 10-3. Yeah. Uh, and, and who knows? Maybe he's bulked up, and maybe that's going to keep him from doing that. But we'll we'll find out. Mark Culkin, what do you think? Good thing, bad thing, what's he going to run? I'm fine with it. Just don't get hurt. Um, and, you know, run to your heart's content. It, 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 it can't hurt you, right? It's going to keep you flexible. It's going to keep you loose. Work on your speed technique, and his best one hundred time. I don't know, 
ten two nine. Ten two nine. I think that's. I think uh, so. I agree with both of you. I think it's pro. I think it's a good thing. I um, more than I think the next the next one's a good thing because I think I think Branch is going to one. He's going to be able to 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 play some football as well. And number two, I think what he's doing is uh, is is something that's going to help him develop what is his primary asset anyway. So I think it's probably, I think it's probably a good fit. I'm going 10.26. Uh, I think he'll shave a little bit of time off of, uh, off of his high school time, but I suspect that branch has been changing his body for football rather than for track. And, and so I don't know whether, I don't know whether he's going to be able to get to the, to the 10, one range or not. I think he's going to get one of those windy Big Ten days, and it, it's he's he's going to get some, some plus wind. He might, he might, but then it won't count because it'll be wind dated. So I didn't realize because, it had to count. All right. Yeah. Well, and and because of that, we went from a tie on that question to Mark Culkin getting a point. He's now three one. Uh, number eight, Deuce Robinson is playing baseball. Good thing or bad thing? And what will be his batting average this year? Now, whose turn is it? You know what? It doesn't matter. Eric, go. All right, so it is a good thing that he's playing baseball because USC very clearly told him he could play baseball and you are not going to get dual sport athletes if you tell a guy as notable as Deuce Robinson, yes, you can play both sports, and then all of a sudden he doesn't and you cut it off. So it is a good thing for that. As far as his sports future and the team and all of that again i haven't seen a ton of him playing baseball but i feel like i've seen a enough and heard enough about him playing baseball and seen enough of him playing football that guy sure feels like a football player to me and should be playing football in the spring to get as as good as he can there again that that receiver position needs needs guys uh there in the spring so i think he's gonna hit 200 that's that's the number that i've got for him on the nose 200 on the nose yes yes uh i'm guessing guessing deuce is not excited about this prediction it's deuce though right so 200 made sense to me just go with two flat two for deuce uh no i don't think i don't think he's going to be excited i don't think he's austin over right as a as a baseball prospect I, i think expecting a true freshman year from Zeus Robinson that matches what we just saw from Austin Overton, who was unbelievable. I, th- I think that's asking a lot from him with baseball. Yeah. Mark, what do you think? Yeah. You know what? I'm fine. Let him do it this year. Get it out of his system. Um, from what I understand, you know, baseball isn't his best sport. Um, I think the most recent major league baseball draft kind of proved that out. So yeah, you know what? You were told you can do it. Go do it. You're going to be pretty busy driving back and forth between, you know, the USC's campus and wherever USC's playing baseball this season. Um, so, yeah, go figure it out. And I, I think he'll bet higher. He'll have a higher batting average than 200. But I'm going to go with the Mendoza line. So whatever his weight is, he's going to bat just below his weight. So he will bat below the Mendoza line. All right. Well, uh, I, I, I'm... 
I'm sort of with you guys uh, in that I'm not excited about it. But look, this is a kid who could have gone and played anywhere. He wanted to play baseball. He still wants to play baseball. They should absolutely let him do it. I mean, in part because uh, because if you want two sport athletes, then you need to let them play two sports and and, and all that. But also because um, you know you're only going to be you're only going to go through college once, and if this kid really loves baseball and and doesn't want to give it up, then then I think it's it's good that he's going to get a chance to play. Baseball is a hard sport to play part time. I mean, it's really hard. Not like in football, you'll you'll see it sometimes. You'll see a guy who's a college basketball player, and and he'll move over and play football. And in a very short amount of time, uh, he's an effective tight end, for example. Right? That can happen because football is a sport that rewards. Uh, athleticism more than it rewards technical skill. Baseball is exactly the opposite. And I think it's really difficult to be a good baseball player and, and, and play uh, and play on the side. Some guys have done it, but it's really difficult. I'm going to say, I'm going to say Deuce is going to hit 276 because I'm an eternal optimist and uh, I want to give him a higher number than, than you guys did. I'm going to give Eric McKinney a point this round not necessarily because his answer merited it, but because we only have two questions left and I wanted this to be a close game. It's now three to two going into question number nine. Question number nine may be the most important question of the day. When they inevitably make the movie about WeRSC, what actors will play the roles of the WeRSC staff? Eric McKinney, start us off. All right. So... I spent all of my apparently the time I was supposed to devote to, to thinking of walk up songs <laughs> to that. This has been like a a two week process in what was already a years long process of me getting this in the works. Right, the We Are SC movie. So so this is just continuation of a lot of work that I've done on this. So uh, I I've put everybody's photo in. I had AI spit out like who your right your your celebrity doppelgangers are. Um, Chris Chris is obviously going to be played by Denzel Washington in the in this movie. Um, the you know the the greatest the greatest actor we can come up with. Uh, Mark Culk. So anyway, Chris, for real, what spit out was Mel Gibson uh, as the as as the photo that that came back out. Timothy Dalton in there too. So maybe we have there's a voice actor and a and a huh. you know on screen actor. Yeah. Mark Culkin came back as Scott Bakula, which I which I liked and think works. Oh, that's solid. It's, no, stop right there. Let me just because that is really freaky. Whatever you're doing this with, and I I I kid you not. Growing up, I was constantly told, that's the dude from Quantum Leap. That's yeah. the dude from Quantum Leap. Yeah. Go ahead. I see that. I see anyway, that. if Mark lost a point for interrupting me, we can do that. And then he I can keep it's, going. It's now tied, it's now Eric, tied at two. Go ahead and continue. Incredible. Okay. Mark, knock it off. It's tied at two. Go ahead, Eric. Finish. Okay. Greg Katz did not spit out as an actor, but Greg Katz is, is Joe Dante, who producer, director, all that was involved in both Gremlins and Gremlins 2, and his hosting job on this show, I feel like, lends well to corralling, you know, Mogwai. Uh, Scott Schrader, Ron Perlman, Marshall Levinson is a high-fidelity Jack Black, and and some of these, the age thing is tough, so we got to go back and forth. Uh, Rich Rubin, basketball coverage, Michael Douglas uh, came back for Rich Rubin. And then I put myself in 
And it came back. It, it was okay, but it was like it's. It said it needed to be an easier on the eyes David Beckham, like a more put together David Beckham. So, wait, wait to play to play me. Did, Eric it, did the AI choose David Beckham, or did you? Uh, the AI, the AI did not. I think the AI chose Annette Benning, possibly. But, but we're obviously we're obviously going obviously going to go with. With David Beckham, but like peak, I think peak David Beckham. Yeah, twenty-nine-year-old David Beckham, something like that. that yeah, makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, Mark Holkin, you have anything to add to this, or are you just going to concede the point? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to concede the point, but I do want to add to this. So just because to get the names out there, um, where should I start though? Let's go with Greg. Uh, how about Judd Hirsch? That's pretty good. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, I thought you'd like that one. I'm going to go with Chris. How about Hugh Grant? Yeah, you like that? Okay. Okay. Yeah. I like you. Eric, Toby McGuire. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to stick with uh, my good pal, John Bender, for me. Even though, look, I I understand the lookalike thing. And I I can't come up with one for Schrader. This is why I'm conceding the point. I cannot come up with one. So just because um, he's a nerd when it comes to recruiting, and I, when I think of nerds right now, I'm thinking of Mark Ruffalo from being Dr. Bruce Banner. That's it. Okay. It's a cheap, it's a cheap throw-in. And then Rich Rubin, honestly, I got nothing. Honestly, I, I've got nothing here right now. So I, this is why I have to concede the point. Eric spent a lot of time on this one. I'm he sure did. That, it was I've got all their walk-up songs, too, if, if you want, if you need those. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll do that next week. It was an impressive performance by by Eric. I don't know. I'm a little bit surprised that Michael Sarah didn't come up in the uh, uh, in the in the McKinney uh, in the McKinney actor. I, I, I liked Christopher Walken for you, Culkin, not because you look alike or even talk alike, but Walken's just fun, and I and I think it would make the movie more fun. Same reason I, I have Larry David playing uh, play Greg Katz. Uh, I just think. Uh, and there's there's a little something there, but I think it I think it would be uh, I think it'd be fun. I, I have Jean Claude Van Damme playing me, but only only if he can get rid of that Belgian accent. I, I'm not going to talk in that Belgian accent in the movie. If he can't fix that, we'll have to go a different direction. But the reason is is because the way I envision it, the plot of the We Are SC movie would involve me fighting in the Kumite against a representative of the NCAA. So it probably makes sense to have Van Damme play that role. Uh, okay, Eric McKinney, you're now up three to two. Um, going into the last question, and I was going to say there's only a chance for a tie, but we know that's not true because you can lose points in this game. Uh, number ten, best high school football player, or if you want to look at it this way, best high school football recruit you ever saw in person. Mark Holden. Hmm. It's probably going to be the one that, you know, of the receiving core that came from Sarah, the one that produced the least amount, George Farmer. Guy was a man among boys in high school, just didn't work out in college. All right, Eric McKinney. It's it's an easy answer and it's probably boring, but I'm from San Diego. I saw Reggie Bush play. Uh, he played against my high. I, I 
It was my freshman year at USC. I was back down in, in San Diego for a weekend. I told a buddy of mine, hey, there's this kid at Helix. We got to go see him. He's he's playing us tonight. And we showed up just in time to see him. Like from the parking lot, we could see the field and he's taking a 65-yard touchdown. That, that play and it's on it's on a bunch of his highlights and the rest of that game it was like oh okay i got i get it i get it cuz that was right 2001 it's not it's not before the internet but it's before a lot of this stuff where you know all these guys there's still some word of mouth and and all of that um with that so that, that was my first time really seeing that guy and and he was good he was he was good you got a pretty special uh, highlight reel if you go watch that on YouTube. I mean, it's pretty spectacular. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to go with Matt Brudegut, who was an un- unbelievable high school football player. And I mean, single-handedly took down a Long Beach Poly team that was that was loaded with four and five star talent. Uh, and 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 imagine this. Good enough that for a while, at least, he was splitting time at quarterback with Matt Leiter. I mean, that tells you something. Uh, he was spectacular. Uh, the other guy that uh, that jumped out at me was uh, much older than Grudek. I say much older, at least a little bit older. When I was a sophomore in high school at Ocean View High School, Fountain Valley won CIF that year. They had a really good passing attack. They played Servite in the playoffs. And Servite had a had a running back named Derek Brown, who ended up playing at Nebraska, and then he played in the NFL for four or five, six years. And Derek and I remember watching Derek Brown in person. It was impressive. That guy was he wasn't very big, but he was strong and fast, and he was he was a man among boys on the field. Even though Fountain Valley ultimately won the game. Uh, okay, uh, I'm going to give the uh, I'm going to give the point to Mark Culkin. It is uh, it is three to three. Uh, three to three is the final score. So both of you retain your honor and your pride, which I'm happy to see. It was questionable uh, for much of the game, but uh, good game. I appreciate that. Uh, if you're watching this and you want to lob in some uh, proposed questions, go ahead and put them on the uh, WeRSE message board, stick them in the uh, comments on YouTube. And if they're good, I'll, uh, I'll adopt them. If they're bad, then I'll make fun of you quietly to myself and we'll just move on. All right. Let's go to our overtime. This week, Chip Kelly made news when he apparently voluntarily left a head coaching job at UCLA so he could go be an assistant coach at another team in the same conference, uh, which, because he was leaving UCLA, was a major upward career move, and it's hard to, uh, it's hard to fault him. Here's what I want to know, guys. Chip Kelly, no, Chip Kelly, no doubt sees uh, sees the move to an assistant coach somewhere else as being better than being the UCLA head coach. I want to know three three jobs from movies or television that Chip Kelly also would have chosen over remaining as the head coach at UCLA. Uh, we'll go around. Give me one, and we'll just go around three times. All right. Let's start with Eric McKinney. McKinney, what other job would Chip Kelly have rather had than continue to be the head coach at UCLA? I mean, so so I have jobs as like playing characters in shows or or TV. He he would have loved to be Biff Tannen from Back to the Future. That that is absolutely right up his alley. That character would have loved it. All yeah, of them, there's... all the different the the different versions. All right, Biff Tannen, Mark Culkin, what do you have? Joe Dirt. 
<laughs> he would rather be Joe Dirt than the UCLA head football coach. That's probably true. I think my number one, I think he would rather have Forrest Gump's job mowing the Greenbow Alabama high school football field than continue to be the UCLA head football coach. McKinney, what else do you have? Do you have any more? Uh, yeah, he would want to do public relations, speak to the media constantly for the Cats movie. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough job. Uh, Mark Holkin, what do you got? So, do you ever see the movie Porky's? I think he would love to have been the principal. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. How about this one? I think he would leave the UCLA head coaching job to take over Louis Anderson's job, washing lettuce at McDowell's and coming to America because he would see the possibility for advancement. Remember, remember, Louis Anderson started off mopping the floor also, and then he went to washing lettuce. Soon I'll be on fries, then the grill. In a year or two, I'll make assistant manager, and that's when the big bucks start rolling in. I think Chip Kelly would rather have that job at McDowell's. Uh, All right, one more time around. What do you have? Yeah, I mean, rather than be the UCLA head coach, Kenny from the early South Park years. <laughs> All right, Mark Culkin, what do you got? Yeah, he's going to be one of those Star, uh, Star Trek characters that wears the red shirt. <laughs> wears the red shirt, yeah. So I was stuck on this one. I was thinking either Spinal Tap drummer or I was going – but I decided I'd go with – Napoleon Dynamite's job on the chicken farm where you can drink all the fresh eggs you want for lunch. I think that's like a dollar an hour. (laughs) I think he'd rather do that to be the head coach at UCLA. Uh, Okay. Once again, if you enjoyed it, even if you didn't click on the like, click on the red subscribe buttons. We appreciate you watching. That's going to do it for uh, this week's edition of inside the Trojans huddle. A big thank you to our all-star panel, Eric McKinney and Mark Culkin. Um, Again, uh, if you have anything you want us to cover, you have topics, you have questions you want us to deal with, lob them in. If they're good, we'll use them. Otherwise, have a great week, and uh, we will see you next week. In the meantime, bye on, everybody.